When Danica Patrick was 16, she did what many young racing drivers do. She left home to follow her dream. She moved to Europe and she had one ambition, and it wasn't winning an IndyCar or leading the Indy 500. No, the goal was Formula One. I mean, when I lived in England, it was Formula One. And I truly said many times, I was like, anything less than Formula One was a failure because that was the top. She had everything she needed to get there. She was a champion in go-karts. She finished second in the prestigious Formula Ford Festival, the international race in England, which helped launch Jensen Button, Mark Webber and many more towards Formula One. She had guidance from a three-time Formula One world champion and support from a US racing star who ran an F1 team. But her goal changed, and her best moments came not in Formula One, but in IndyCar. Here comes Danica Patrick to turn number three, now on to turn four, only a few hundred yards away from making history. Danica Patrick will win at Motegi. Green flag, green flag. We are down to the final 10 laps of the Indianapolis 500. Danica Patrick has moved out into the front. Danica Patrick is for real and she leads. What do people think of me now that it's over? What I hope that they think of me is that they remember me as a great driver. I never mind that they remember me as a girl, but I hope that they remember me as like, God, you know, she was really good. Like she was good. Yeah, she was a girl, but she went against the guys and did an incredible job and accomplished a lot of great things. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Danica Patrick showed she had the speed to compete at the front in IndyCar and NASCAR. Formula One fans might wonder why we never saw her in an F1 car, especially given the media reports in 2008, just after Danica's IndyCar win. Back then, it was widely reported that the Honda F1 team wanted to give her a test, a chance to show what she could do. But that test never took place. I asked Annika about what really happened there, and we also talked about the influence of Sir Jackie Stewart and Bobby Rahal on her career, her move back to the US, and the challenge of road courses and oval racing in IndyCar and NASCAR, the mentality of racing drivers and, of course, Formula One, which she's now covering as a broadcaster. Danica's thoughtful, honest, and funny too. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Danica, it's great to have you on the show. Now, it's also great to have you back in the Formula One paddock. Viewers will have seen you on TV duty with Sky. How are you finding it? I have a blast. I really like uh, all the people. I really enjoy the style of announcing that it is. You know, I, I do a little bit in Hold the Top Motorsports, which is, I feel so fortunate with doing the Indy 500, uh, with a couple of NASCAR races, and then with these Formula One races. But I, I guess for my personality, the style of announcing that we do suits me the best, which is kind of winging it, <laughs> which is just, you know, someone walks up and you just kind of have to like, you know, you need to be aware of what's going on. So I will say Austin in 2021, I was in the deep end and I was like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I hadn't watched every race all season and I just wasn't up on everything enough. Uh, I'm in a much better position now. But, you know, you just kind of are, you know, really going with the flow and, you know, we just kind of can look at each other and give each other an eye like, OK, you're next or like, do you have a question or I'm done or like, I have no idea. Move on. <laughs> um, so we just have a really good, really good rapport. And what about the transition from effectively answering questions to quite often asking questions? It's much different. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When you're being 
asked questions, you need no prep, you have no nerves, there's just nothing to do. There's not that you just show up. Cause as I've said a million times over the 27 years of racing that I did is like, they're not going to ask me a question that I don't have an answer for. That's why they're talking to me. And so when you're on the other side of the microphone though, and you're asking questions, there's two things. One, shut up and let them talk. That's a very important quality. But also another one, uh, as you laugh, cause you know, I'm, it's, 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 a ch- it's kind of challenging sometimes cause you want to say something, but you really need to like allow people to finish their thoughts. Another important thing is to obviously have some awareness and prep and just know what you want to ask them. And, you know, so I have a little bit more familiarity with that cycle of like, okay, who's coming up today? What kind of ideas around that person will we be talking about? And then you can kind of have like a subtle plan. I now, kind of have a process of having at least like two or three questions in my mind because sometimes someone else will ask a question already that I was thinking about and so you need to move on and the last thing you want to be doing is standing there with someone like Christian Horner or Toto Wolf or any of the drivers and be like uh so uh and ask some really insignificant question that's a waste of their time. Look, what's what's your take on F1 in 2022? I mean, why don't we talk about the world champion, Max Verstappen? Just give us your thoughts on the job you think he's done. Yeah, well, it's, you know, the last two years that I've obviously been involved and have been exciting. And last year came down to the wire and uh, it was all about the, the on-track stuff, driver to driver and what was happening. And this year, you know, Max really, I mean, obviously it was a little bit more um, shuffled around in the first part of the season with Max having a couple of early races with no points. And then it, you know, kind of kept swinging back and forth, but then Max just took over and won everything. And so, you know, we haven't been talking about that as much, but of course, then there's been so many other topics that have cropped up throughout the season with rules and infringements and penalties and, you know, the way the car is handling on track and what's appropriate for the driver to deal with and so there's been other issues so it's not been a lack of uh, entertainment it's just been different entertainment this year must ask you about lewis as well Uh, resilience is the word that comes to mind when i think of him after everything that he went through last year and of course the difficulties with this year's car have you been impressed by the way he's dealt with it yeah, I have. I mean, I, I, I mean, Lewis has been around for a really long time, and he's seen many different iterations of emotions throughout his career. So I think that he's done a really good job because what you've really the proof is in the pudding. He has been able to continue to get better and better throughout the season, and that there was obviously you know a point in time early in the season where he was really challenged, and you could see the frustration, but rightfully so, and um, and so I. I think that that just speaks to his love for the sport and his passion and his drive. Like, I just feel like he has a lot of drive. Go on then. One last thing on the drivers. Who else has impressed you this year? It's really hard to not answer with Max. He's at the record for the wins in a season. I mean, it's hard to say anything but him, but but aside from the shoe-in, I think there's just been so many waves. I think what's made the exciting the season exciting is that Charles was really good early on and throughout the middle. And then, you know, Carlos has had a couple of flashes and Sergio had his surge kind of a third of the way into the season where we were talking about him a lot. And, you know, I just think we're, you know, we saw a lot of waves of different drivers having their moments of like, okay, they're in the mix for the championship. Uh, And then Max went ahead and won like seven in a row or something like that. Um, But I mean, I I think that I think that's what that's what's made a great season. 
Danica, the explosion of Formula One in, in the US is real, isn't right. it? It's a big deal. And, you know, I was hearing about it years and years ago from other athletes that were fascinated with Drive to Survive. And that I'm going to say it's been pretty much single handedly the most influential element within America to making Formula One more popular. And, uh, you know, it's been so much that I feel like you've seen other series, um, NASCAR in particular, I'm thinking of doing things to try and recreate that magic that Drive to Survive and Netflix did with the series. So why, um, why did it resonate with the public so much? Well, we got an inside scoop, you know, there was like an insight into what the sport was like and all this and the personalities and the and the politics and the dynamics. And, you know, of course, then pile on top of it some, you know, speed and tires doing burnouts and all the cool sounds of Formula One and the sights, you know, that stuff is visually appealing and sounds amazing too. So I just think that, you know, the series has stimulated the senses in, a, in so many different ways and, and has really, really made it very popular here. And, you know, I heard another thing someone said the other day was uh, just that, you know, there's pro it's probably rightfully so that America's getting three races and that's fine because America's a really big country. And so, you know, it can definitely hold a lot of different races because there's because it's such a big space we have. And so last night I was looking at how many Englands can fit inside of the United States. And it's um, do you know how do you know no, how many? I don't. I'm dying okay. to know now. Uh, do you have a guess? Uh, uh, how big do we go? Uh, hundreds. Hundreds. It's 75 and a half. Oh. 75 and a half Englands can fit in America. So when you look at Europe and you look at how many races are in Europe, you know, you, you go, OK, great. Well, you know, I think it, I think the states can handle it. And the popularity of the sport has definitely uh, driven that demand. What about four races in the U.S.? For sure. <laughs> I mean, doing the races and living in America, of course, I'd love for four races. I think there is something to be said for a little exclusivity, like to not make something so, so, so accessible. Because uh, when, you, when, you, when you keep things rare, when you keep things special, then it creates a, a demand. It's like the restaurant that you can't get a reservation at. So, you know, there will undoubtedly be people that will want to go to these races, let's say next year in the States between Miami, Vegas and Austin and they might not be able to get a ticket. And so then they'll try the next year. So, you know, but if you give so many races that it's now ordinary or, or there, people have gone to so many, it might not be as special. So I, I'm kind of all about, all about keeping it kind of high and tight. <laughs> yeah, less is more kind less of Less is more, yeah, yeah, yeah a little yeah. bit, yeah. Now, let's talk about you, the racing driver now. First of all, in the context of Formula One, because looking back, a lot was said and written about you coming to Formula One. And how mm. do you reflect on it now? How close did it get? <laughs> Not very. <laughs> like, truly, uh, I, I don't think I was ever actually like really properly ever offered a test. It always felt like media fodder. It felt like something just to drum up attention because I never got a phone call. Like there was, and there was a couple of two or three different times I feel like during my career where there was uh, news articles and media about like, oh, Danica might be, you know, maybe she should come to F1 or is coming to F1 or maybe doing a test or something. And I'm like, nobody's called me. <laughs> like even you probably find old clips, nobody's called me, so. But Danica, even in 2008, you were very tight with Honda at the time. Mm -hmm. And I definitely remember 
rumors of you doing a test with Honda and then of course they pulled out of Formula One at the end of 2.8 so it never happened but they didn't get on the no no (laughs) like there was never anything that was coming down the pipeline at all no I think there was at one point in time there might have been a little bit more of like an exhibition drive kind of I think it was like maybe back in the day when Tony Stewart and someone else, I can't remember the other driver in Formula One that swapped cars and kind of drove side by side or drove each other's cars a little bit, maybe Watkins Glen or something. I might be getting the track wrong, but I didn't want to do that either. Like I already am like, you know, to some people part of like the show, you know, and just being unique and different. So the last thing I wanted to do was kind of feed into that with some kind of exhibition. But does the racing driver in you, want to have a go in one of these cars if some if one of these teams now <laughs> said Danica come and have a run out would would you go would you do it honestly if I'm from being transparent like that makes me nervous it makes me nervous because it should go all right right like that would be the expectation level like I drove indie cars for a long time I raced for 27 years like I did plenty of road course racing in my days like it should go decent right but what if it doesn't What if it doesn't? Like, does that take away from who I am as a driver? Because I don't know. I mean, part of me, if I thought to myself, if I could go out there and like it was just my damn dad in me or something like that going like, let's see what a Formula One car feels like and no one would ever know. I'd be like, all right, you know, cool. Like, I'll just see how it feels. So I guess the the media attention and the and the reputation for whatever happened gets me nervous because my job is to perform. And even if I'm not racing anymore, I still feel that pressure. I mean, like I've felt pressure to throw a pitch on top of a mound during a baseball game when I throw out a first pitch. I'm like, I'm an athlete. I'm supposed to do that well. And so I probably put more pressure on myself than necessary. But I think to feel one would be interesting. I, my, my life does not like ride on this, on the, on the balance of me getting to feel what a Formula One car is like. Um, I guess it would be pretty cool to have driven IndyCar, NASCAR, Formula One car, all of that, have that experience. So it could be an interesting idea, especially with doing more commentating and just having a little bit of a feel for what is going on in the cockpit and what the car feels like could be a very interesting perspective. This is quite interesting. You've been retired, what, four years yeah. now? Mm-hmm. The competitor in you has not gone no. anywhere, has it? <laughs> yeah, it really like, has I mean, I feel like, okay, what's a reasonable <laughs> amount that I could be off and like people respect me still? Like, would I have to be within like, like two seconds to be respected? What if I'm four seconds off? What if I go out and I'm a freaking half a second off and then I look like maybe I should start driving Formula One? <laughs> um, but I, you're right. The, com- the competitor in me can't ever go away. I mean, when I pull up to a stoplight in my regular car, I still pull in front of everyone at the line. It's just in my nature. <laughs> Where did your passion for racing come from? My dad used to race when he was younger. When race what? What did he race? He raced snowmobiles. So I guess first he would have raced motocross. Then after that he raced snowmobiles, and then like on ice flat tracks, like sliding sideways that stuff. And uh, he actually met my mom at a snowmobile race on a blind date. So that's that's where they got together. And then he raced midgets. There's sprint cars which have the big wings, but this is without the wing. So he raced on dirt tracks. Again, sideways on ovals. So I have racing, you know, there's racing in my family. And we were really looking for something to do together as a family so that we could just spend time together because my dad worked and my mom stayed home and looked after my sister and I. So once my sister was born, she's two years younger than I am. That's when my dad quit racing. And then um, 
seven years after that, probably, that's when we got go-karts. So yeah, I, I think it's just in the family. I understand it, but I could truly use anything competitive to fuel my fire. Like, I mean, whether it's like performing, a, like having a good interview and asking good questions or getting more extreme and doing something physically challenging, be it a marathon and or bungee jumping. I enjoy pushing myself and finding that and like pushing the limits. And I actually always thought that the limit was what was scary to me. Like I'm a very methodical driver. I build up a little bit slower. So I like that challenge. And I didn't know that about myself when I was racing. Was it the challenge that you loved almost more than the driving? I don't want to put words into your mouth. It's true because I don't like racing is cool and great and I loved it and I understand it and it's interesting and I've been passionate about it, but like, it's not the only thing I love. And I think that it's a little representative of like something that you just do for fun when, or that you really enjoy doing when you do it on your free time. And so I don't just go to the races and hang out. Like I like getting involved in something when there's a challenge. So if there's not a challenge, it's just, I find myself doing personal development far more than anything. Retreats or books or watching interesting videos or taking in content about the universe or something like that. Like I find myself, uh, shoot, going to therapy I find and I like doing even. So like I am very much in personal development and so that's something that I do a lot of my free time, which is really where the podcast fits in for me because it's to me, it's like I was already consuming information and now I'm just able to direct that information to certain people so that I can be intelligent when I speak to them and hopefully ask them something maybe they haven't been asked before. So was it a fear of failure or the lure of success? Mm. Probably more the fear of failure. I think I said that early on in my life too. Like that, that scares me the most, more than speed or any of those things. It's just like not being good. Did you have any racing heroes back then? That's uh, you know, whenever somebody would ask me about that, it's interesting because it probably leads to like one of the most quotable things I I usually say, which is that I wanted to be the first me, not the next somebody else. And I like I had great people around me, but I used them all as like teachers. I didn't want to be like them. And it wasn't like a, like a rude thing. I didn't, I just didn't think about them like that. I thought, how can they help me progress? I I just, yeah, I've learned from the people around me. And so, uh, and I was just, yeah, I just, I don't know. I think I inherently just knew I was a little different. And whenever you try and be like somebody else, you just can't. Like, it's not possible. You'll fall short. You'll always fall short because it's not you. The best thing that you can do is is be you because you are unique. Like, to be like anybody else is, is, a, is, an, is, an, is already a conceding some level of failure, I think. Who did you admire? I think admire is a better word. I would agree with that word. You know, one of the drivers that I liked growing up was Jacques Villeneuve. And what's funny is that when I was in uh, the Nationwide Series in NASCAR, I had the opportunity to race against Jacques. And I had the opportunity to look good against Jacques. So here's the story. So we were, he would do the road courses. This is back in 2012. Uh, we were at Road America. And it was coming down to the last lap. And I think I was fourth and he was fifth. And we were coming down the hill from the, on the back straightaway to a hard left-hand corner, downhill braking. And he just punted me 
And so he proceeded on, and I don't know wherever I finished. And then the next time that we met, and so then the, the conversation after was obviously that, you know, I was ahead of him and like, he's just being a jerk and like taking me out. And I was like, there's some level of satisfaction that I could have never dreamed I'd achieved to look good next to the one guy that I really like liked and thought, man, if I could have a career like that, that'd be pretty amazing, which was, you know, going to Indy the first year and I think finishing second, maybe one the next year, going to Formula One and winning. And it's like, I was like, that's pretty amazing. And so to have that happen and then fast forward to Montreal and we, of course, started on the same row together. We qualified like third and fourth, I think. And so we rode around in the truck at Montreal and then I'm in the lead and it's this very bizarre scenario where I, it was going out in the back, the S's leads onto the back straightaway before the hairpin. And as you come around that bend, there's a bridge and um, there was a shoe in the middle of the racing line. And I came around first and I literally hit the shoe and broke my rear suspension. Like it knocked out a U-bolt or something like that. I'm not super technical. So, um, but my rear end was moving around. So I kept leading for a while, but like I had to turn the car to like set it because it would like slam side to side because there was slop in the rear end. And so I had to keep setting it for every corner before I got there. In the end, it ended up breaking. Um, but that's my Jacques Villeneuve story. It's a, great, it's a great story. And of course, racing is, we're just, it's one big family, isn't it? And of course, in Austin last weekend, no doubt you're, you're catching up with Jacques and a lot of the guys you race with in England, which we're going to come on to, you're now working with at Sky. It's 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 like one big family reunion every small time. Small world, small world. I mean, even like Paul DeResta, I mean, I knew him when he was a kid. I was living in England when I was 16 and 19 years old. And, you know, he's related to Dario Franchitti. And I knew Marino. I raced with Marino, Dario's brother. And, you know, so I like I knew him. Anthony Davidson, who I worked with in Austin, finally. We raced together. We were on the same team uh, where he won the festival in 2000. And I finished second. So we knew each other really well. So, yeah, it's a small, small world. And, and then it was fun. Uh, I took a picture and sent the picture of Anthony and I to Lee Diffie and maybe people are familiar with Lee is a great voice he announces for IndyCar and Olympics and all kinds of amazing sports and that festival event in 2000 where Anthony won and I was second Lee was announcing that race and so then I got to say hi to Lee last weekend and I see him of course at the IndyCar races but yeah just super small world it really is and tell us why you went to England because what were you were 16 at the time that's a big move I just wanted to get out of high school no, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, you go to any lengths. That was a perk. I mean, to get out of high school was a perk, right? I just didn't have to, you know, go anymore. Can you imagine being a junior? And I left halfway through my junior year, and just you know, that was it. And uh, so it was very cool. Um, I was like, great. Uh, and I and I wasn't. I was. I was a good student. I just was fun. I didn't have to go to high school anymore. But it was really just a place where I could cut my teeth and have an opportunity to race all year and. Um, you know, there was just someone a long, long time ago that said I could learn more in one year in England than five years in America. And I was like, well, that sounds like a good plan. And is that true? Do no, you think it's not. <laughs> it's it's not. not at all true. I learned more about life there in one year than five years in America because I had to grow up really fast because, you know, I was alone in England and I was 16 and um, had to learn what it was like to, you know, put a wall up a little bit and like be a little protective of myself and not be so naive and um, and also fend for myself and, and, and also show that grit and determination and passion. And that's ultimately what got me the ride with Bobby Rahal when I came back when I was 19 was that he saw that I was over there and, and doing the difficult and sticking it out and showing that passion. Did you get homesick? 
No, no, I don't really get, I mean, I've lived in so many houses in my life and traveled so much. I feel like I don't really get, I, it's a tough, it's not a feeling I get too much. Thankfully so, I guess, <laughs> without much on the road that we all do. I didn't get homesick, but I definitely, you know, it would get sad just not having, not doing better than what I was doing. And, you know, the festival and finishing second was a highlight of when I was over there. Um, but there was a lot that wasn't such a highlight. What were your ambitions at this point? Were you thinking Formula One? Were you just taking it from one race to the next, one year to the next? No, the goal was Formula One. I mean, when I lived in England, it was Formula One. And I truly said many times, I was like, anything less than Formula One, it was a failure. Because that was the top. And so, you know, it's like shoot for the moon. And, you know, if you miss, it's still probably pretty good. So, and, and also, who's to say that Formula One was the best place for me? You know, one thing that I learned in England was, um, and it came at the festival, like my mom was there and I was just having such a good time and my emotions were good. And I was saying hi to everybody. I remember I waved like literally every yellow shirt every all weekend long. I just was having a really fun weekend and, and I had a great weekend. There was not only the festival, but there was also a European championship race. And I was like up at the front for all of it. And, um, and I just saw how helpful it was for me to be happy. And, um, I just wasn't that happy in England. And so I, I don't know. I don't know if Formula One really would have been the right place for me anyway. I find that my results come when I'm the most emotionally happy and excited. And, you know, I also don't know if I could have dealt with the breakfast in England much longer. Yeah. It's just not up to snuff for me, you know. <laughs> Where were you living in England? Milton Keynes. <laughs> So that was Stuart Grand Prix time. They just set up, I think, hadn't they? Yeah, one of the girls that I first started living with worked there. Did you meet Jackie Stewart? Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually saw him in Austin, too. Yeah, I met Jackie. Actually, Jackie took me around the track in Olton Park. He oh, took no. me around did you, Olden did you Park have the tennis car. ball? The tennis ball no, on the bonnet? Oh, no, okay. but he totally, like, I know what you're probably alluding to, which is just how smooth he was on and off the brake. And just, I, that always stuck with me, too, if I'm being honest. Like, he, he it was like such a smooth ride with him. And so um, so I knew Jackie, yeah. And I would go to that the their, their Formula One shop, you know, every now and again. And, yeah, so I did know Jackie. And, and did the second place in the Formula Ford Festival open any more doors? Did it? Was it going to prolong your stay in Europe? Not really. Not really. Actually, what ended up happening in driving me home was that the team that I finished the festival second with was called uh, Haywood. And Haywood I, Racing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, they had four drivers on that team, and they didn't want to have five, so they put me on like a second-level team. And then for the festival, they brought me into the tent for the festival, and that was kind of the end of the season. And then the next year, I was supposed you know I'm going to be on the main team so I am but then they also added another driver and made it five and I was like well you know what screw you and so I felt like I I was always the fifth driver you know and I I think there's just something to be said for being you almost you'd almost want to be like number one driver of a secondary team then you'd want to be fifth driver of a first team and uh, I just wasn't getting what I deserved and I remember it was uh I think we were racing at I think it was Pembry I'd only raced there that one time that I didn't actually race at because it was halfway through the weekend and my manager said, stay home. So I stayed home and I didn't go, I only practiced the first day and then I never, and I didn't go back for the rest of the weekend. That was it. That was my last time. And my manager said, well, you'll come home. We'll figure something out and we'll get you what you need. And um, that didn't happen, but I did come home and I did figure something out on my own. And my dad and I pounded the streets at the racetrack of IndyCar races for the next year. And that ultimately landed me with Bob. When did you first meet Bobby? In England. 
So when he was running Jaguar Racing? Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, we went to TGI Fridays. <laughs> of In course. Milton Keynes. <laughs> we did. I just asked if there's still the TGI Fridays there, and they said yes. <laughs> so was that still with a view of, of Formula One and Jaguar Racing? And no. No. Mm-mm. No, I was okay with coming home. I was kind of over it at that point in time. And I'd gotten a little bit more sad over there. I was living alone the last year, and man, I was, I was told the story that the the most depressing day was I was getting ready to, I was like, oh, it's sunny out, great. I'll put my shoes on and my workout clothes, I'll go running. I lived in Milton Keynes on the like east side where there was a lake. There was like a lake over there. I can't remember the name of it. There was a big windmill too. And uh, so I, I got my shoes on and opened up the door and I opened up the door and it's sunny still, but it's now raining while it's sunny. And I just remember kind of having like a moment of like, this sucks. <laughs> So you come home, you hook up with Bobby. I think it was Barber Dodge first, if I'm right. Correct. Yep. I did like five races in that. How did you find ovals? How difficult was that to adapt to? It wasn't. Like I took to that pretty well. I think that was something that surprised me even. I don't know why and you didn't ask me necessarily, but um, there's a level of trust in yourself that you have to have and not overdriving because you'll crash. You know, I wasn't as adventurous with the lines as everyone, and I could really see that in NASCAR, especially from the, from the guys that did dirt racing. I mean, those guys would run any line on the track, including right next to the wall. I don't know if you've seen how fascinatingly awesome and astonishing it is to watch, like, Kyle Larson drive next to the wall, but it is not something I can do. And so I, maybe I'm not as adventurous, but I, but I was very consistent, and I tended to not make, as, not make too many mistakes, and hitting my marks was something I was, you know, I think I, I focused on a lot. And so I think that that made oval racing for me something that, that really was pretty natural. Is it hard to be good at both, both ovals and road racing? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I I don't think it's hard to be good at both. I mean, one of the things that is a little different with some of the ovals is when you're running side by side versus a setup of a pass. So places where you had to set up a pass, I was a little better at than the side by side just because, you know, that was something I wasn't as familiar with. Just really like going 220 miles an hour, like we're like, you know, six to 12 inches from someone and running all these different lines and trusting that they weren't going to be stupid. But when it came to places like Milwaukee or Martinsville or, you know, just places that were more classic ovals where you'd set up a pass or even some of the ovals in IndyCar when it would be one lane in the corners more so just because of like marbles and debris. It just some of the tracks kind of funneled into that kind of style during the race. Those are some of them that I felt like I did better because I would be able to sort of set up the pass. But yeah, um, I, I think you can be good at both for sure. Is Indianapolis one of those ovals that you've just described yeah, where actually, you get the one Yeah, how did line? I forget that? How did I forget Indy? Yeah, it's a total set up the pass thing. There's not much side by side at Indy. It's not the wise way to go around. Right, but duck to water, 2005, you qualify brilliantly. You lead the race for what, 19 laps yeah. you finished? I mean, what a huge moment in your career. Yeah, yeah. I at least felt like I would have a ride the next year with that. I was like, because, you know, you get into IndyCar or whatever, you get into the top level of motorsports and you know, getting there seems like it's the hardest thing and it probably is. But then the next hardest thing is staying there. And so I remember thinking my first year, like, God, I'm here, but I have to stay here. Like I have to show them that I deserve to be here. And I felt like, you know, especially, you know, I'm grateful for the media attention, but 
of course, the media attention came because I almost won. So I was like, okay, you know, here we are at like the third and fourth or fourth and fifth race of the season. And I qualified on the front row at Montegi the race before and finished fourth. And then I went to Indy and nearly qualified on the pole if I wouldn't have gotten loose or, you know, of course, that's the story I tell um, and uh, qualified fourth and finished fourth. And I was like, all right. I think I might get to stay for at least next year now because, like, I'm, I'm up there with the guys and, and um, we've made quite a splash. Do you get emotional? I mean, when you have a great result like the one at Indy, do you allow yourself to reflect and say, I'm really good? <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I, I, um, I was recently in therapy about that, thinking, like, do I, do I feel like I'm actually really good? Like, do I? I don't know. Was I, like, did I trick everyone? Um, I think I, the evidence was there at oh, Indy in 2005. Thanks. I mean, thank you. Um, I, I don't know if that's just the sort of the nature of competition is pushing yourself and not always like, what if I just like, I'm awesome. That's it. I'm great. You know, I don't know. Where does that propel you to? It's this sort of feeling like you're needing to prove yourself all the time that kind of keeps you going and, and keeps you accountable to yourself instead of just pointing a finger and thinking, no, I'm amazing. It's your fault. There's a, there's a certain sort of like accountability that comes with not knowing how and what your like level of contribution is and that you have to keep proving yourself. And do you think that's the same with all top drivers? I remember Michael Schumacher used to have a test every January where they would just let him do some laps and he just had to remind himself to see if he could still do it, still be really good. Do you think Scott Dixon, do you think Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, do you think they all feel the need to continue proving themselves? Well, there's probably varying degrees of that, right? There's proving yourself to stick around in the sport, which we're seeing, you know, getting to the end of the season here, you see drivers out there trying, just trying to hang on, whether it be, you know, Daniel Ricciardo or Mick Schumacher, you know, you're seeing drivers just trying to prove themselves out there. And then you're, then you can see it on another level where you're trying to be the best driver in a team, but now you're talking about the best driver on a team where, you know, the competition is Lewis Hamilton and George Russell level, right? So there's definitely levels to this proving yourself. And then there's, you know, the proving yourself to the point where you win X amount of races or a championship or multiple championships. So I think it's kind of built in. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, anybody, any of these Formula One drivers, you can just say they're good because they're in Formula One. After that, it's like, you know, you're, 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 you're trying to prove probably varying different things. And so I'm sure that everyone can say, especially at the top when we're talking about like big names. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. They know they're good. But how good? Let's fast forward to 2008. Mategi, you win that amazing race. Fuel saving, passing Helio Castroneves. Just how did that win shift your goals in the sport? You've ticked that box. Yeah, What's next? I mean, it was nice to do it. And I just really wish I would have done it more times. And I, there was many more opportunities. And, um, you know, I really felt like my 2007 season was probably the strongest one. And probably if there's anything, when I look back at my career, it was 2007. And, you know, Indy 500 comes early in the year. And I was on a team with a bunch of drivers. And Dario had won the race at the, had won the, Indy 500 and we kind of were all instructed to help him win the championship that year and you know I ran the top five like every weekend and uh, I, I found myself following him a lot and I just look back at those races and think what if I just said screw it you know what if I just said I'm gonna pass him you know like that should have been a, a okay and maybe I just should have done it you know but I can look back to that year and think man there was a lot of times I was running up front and I don't know would they have materialized and wins I don't know but it would have made me feel better that I would have tried for them a little bit 
bit more. And I know that sounds a little crazy coming from me, but like when you are running like, you know, 180 laps into a 250 lap race and, you know, you're like, oh, just hang there, just ride behind them. Like what happens if I would have taken a lead at that point in time? You know, how would that have played out in the race? And and so um, team orders can and will always be part of racing, no matter how much they want to police that stuff. Danica, you and I have only just met, but I can see you're so competitive. Why didn't you pass Dario? Well, because we were just like the team instructions were to just kind of yeah, help him and follow him and like, let's just keep it orderly. And, you know, uh, and, and I just, you know. I, I think Dario would have respected you. If oh, yeah. That. And it's nothing against Dario. I mean, this was just like the team trying to win a championship. And, um, and so, um, you know, it's just, just a memory I have. And memories are, memories are also this very interesting thing that are, I don't know what it is. I don't know how much time it takes, but at some point in time become like 50% inaccurate. And so, you know, I'm telling you my memories, but the reality of it, who knows, maybe I had never had a damn chance at winning any one of those races, but my memory said, I wish I would have passed and, and driven as hard as I could and not followed anyone that year. But of course, we're talking about winning in Japan and, and how that, you know, you asked if that changed my career or anything or goals or anything, and it didn't really. I actually thought it would have made a bigger difference, especially from a marketing perspective. I, you know, I felt like I always heard that, you know, when you win, that'll be when, and then I won, and it was like nothing, and I'm like, okay, great. Look, so clearly very at home in an indie car. Why the switch to NASCAR in 2012? It really was down to ovals. I mean, I just really enjoyed oval racing, and, and IndyCar had gone from only three road courses to majority road courses, and... Um, I just really enjoyed, I liked oval racing. I felt, I just felt like, I don't know, I struggled on qualifying. I struggled qualifying on road courses. I'd usually have good races and, and would always climb my way up and, and have decent results. But, but that was a little bit of a challenge for whatever reason. And, um, and I just felt like ovals were more, I just had better chances of winning. And NASCAR was all ovals basically. So, um, and I just was excited and interested in change. At that point in time, I wasn't super happy with my team and where I was at and the dynamics within it that were more like on a political like or more internal level it wasn't necessarily teammates it was just the inner workings of a of, of a deal with a driver and a team um, so I just kind of wasn't happy with a few various things and I was like meh let's just make a change if there's one thing I can say about myself is that I'm prepared for change meaning like I'm okay with it you know I have a reaction like everyone else I feel like when it comes to change where it's like Oof. Okay, and then I'm like, well, maybe it'll be better than I could ever expect. And uh, you don't know unless you try. So, um, so I, I learned that very early on in my life with simple things like changing crew chiefs or engineers or teams and thinking, oh, great, now what's going to happen? And then having things go better and you go, okay, well, change can be a good thing. And was change a good thing? Yeah, I was. I had a blast. Um, what are they like to drive? Oh, they're much more lethargic, you know. Um, the Jackie Stewart stuff came into play. <laughs> Get on that brake smoothly, you know. Don't you got to turn them in a little bit earlier in an open wheel car with all that downforce and straight line braking? You know, you'll wait till the last minute to turn in and have like a really long straight exit out. Um, but in a stock car, you have to load the car up and you have to get it turned in early. And um, there's a lot more mechanisms within the car that kind of get it to like yaw out and turn sideways. Actually, that's a funny story. When I was like, I heard the word yaw for the first time, I was testing a stock car in Florida. It was my first test. And my crew chief then, Tony Uri Jr., he said, you know, when you get that thing there, y'alled out. And I was like, 
they say y'all for everything. And I was like, oh no, he said y'all. And I was like, what the hell is y'all? And um, so they, they have a few more things that kind of get the car rotated in the middle with throttle. So you, but you got to load that car up because that sucker is, you know, 3,500 pounds. Well, and, and you put it on the pole at the Daytona 500. So clearly you made the switch successfully, but how difficult was it to go from IndyCar to NASCAR? And I'm thinking of the journey that Jimmy Johnson's been on recently, going the other way, admittedly, but clearly it's not straightforward. <laughs> no, I, I personally think it's a little easier to probably go from IndyCar to NASCAR. I commend Jimmy on going from NASCAR to IndyCar because IndyCars are a totally different beast. Everything happens so much faster. Um, they're just so quick and like whether it's throttle, acceleration, restarts are a freaking blur. Um, and um, it, it's just like IndyCars are just, I feel like a little more challenging in some different ways. And a lot of it has to just do with speed. Now, stock cars are very challenging in their own, their own unique ways, but I commend Jimmy for the efforts in, in IndyCar. But yeah, I, I, how did it go? I mean, I think there was definitely some years of figuring things out. Something simple, like I didn't even know that I needed to give feedback on the water and oil temperature. And then I found out, oh, that's really important because if they can put more tape on the front of the grill and the front, that's more downforce. Like there's just simple things I didn't know. It was a great racing career. Thank you. Really was. Thank you. Why did you retire? <laughs> good, great so question. Young as sure, well, good question. So young. I was like 36. Um, it was 2017, and there was just a lot of signs pointing in that direction. And I kind of approached that year with the perspective of letting things happen naturally. And I didn't effort for anything. So I didn't like go knocking down doors and calling all the sponsors and doing all the things. I was like, if this stuff all lines up and there's a team and there's a sponsor and all these things, great, I'll be back. And if not, that's okay. So in 17, one of the first big things that happened was at the very beginning of the year, my sponsor was starting year two of three. So they'd only done one year, my primary sponsor, and they just pulled out. They had some sort of reasoning and whatever else, but they pulled, they were pulling out and they were the primary sponsor. So they were, you know, I have some 30 million a year or whatever it was in NASCAR. And so it was kind of that that happened first. And then later on, it was that the team didn't want to have me. They, they, they released me and weren't going to have me back. And someone else was going to fill that spot that had full sponsorship. And so um, that happened. And, and I just I was kind of a spiritually, emotionally of growing and evolving. And and sometimes part of that journey is growing out of spaces that you're in. It's good and bad. You know, it means that the good is that you're growing and evolving. And then the bad is that life changes. And so, you know, I was becoming increasingly less like happy in the environment that I was in. I kind of could start to feel and see like how brutal it was and just how, you know, the idea that you had to be a total dick to be successful is not my personality. Like I can be tough, but I'm not like, I don't want to have to be a jerk. And do you, think, do you think you really need to be like that? Yeah. I mean, that's what drivers would say. I mean, you know, just to take people out or be cutthroat and just, I mean, I think there is some degree of that. There is some degree of that, you know? I mean, you can see that even in Formula One. You look at the drivers that are known to be aggressive, they do well, right? And people, you know, they, they have that reputation. And so, you know, I'm not saying that's the only thing. It's just, and then just kind of the energy of the people around me. I just kind of felt like, man, it's just, I don't feel a lot of joy out here anymore. It's a grind. 
And I know the Formula One goes all over the world and it's like, a, this is a, it's definitely a grind in Formula One to be on the road. But when you race like 38 or nine out of 40 weeks in the year, literally almost every single one of them back to back, depending on the year, you get one or two weeks off in the entire season. That's a grind. And like, it just, people just didn't seem as happy as like, I wanted to be around. And so um, I kind of just allowed the transition to happen. That really is a treadmill actually, isn't it? 35 races a year it's yeah you're, i mean it you're was jumping on in march and you're not getting off well, it's 36 regular season and then there was the first race of the year which was the bud shootout or whatever they call it now and then there was the clash and then um then there was the all-star race so it's 38 38 races and it was all done in the total of about 40 weeks and it was hang up the helmet completely you weren't tempted to try something else go back to indycar no Mm -mm. No, I'm okay. It's like when I did the Boston Marathon and they were like, you're going to do another one? And I'm like, one and done. <laughs> you obviously did a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, my goal of Boston was to get under four hours. And did you do it? I almost did. Um, my, uh, I ran with my sister and one of my best friends. And we, um, my sister and I got down to the end. And I'm looking at my watch. And my watch is showing 26.2. And I am like, we are not at the finish line yet. And so um, we finished in 401.20 and uh, we ran 26.56 miles. So, you know, yes, did I do Boston 26.2 miles in four hours? I did, but, you know, technically, I guess I, I guess I wasn't running the racing line out there. <laughs> I, I wasn't got... <laughs> running the minimum distance of the Boston Marathon. Therefore, I had to run an extra, you know, 0.35 or six miles. I think you've got to go again. Yeah, no, 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 you're funny. You're real funny. Look, if there's one race that you could relive, which one would it be? The Indy 500 in 2005. Yeah, what a cool, like, what a show. What a, what a situation. I mean, I went from starting fourth to stalling in the pits to climbing my way back to spinning on a restart to getting a front wing to taking the lead and then losing it and then retaking the lead on the next restart to then you know finishing fourth and it's uh you know even finishing in the exact same way that it did it would be fun to revisit that with older eyes and older older ears and be able to like uh, welcome that experience with more awareness and what's the prospect of retirement scary i always think we're institutionalized aren't we yeah. in this sport you, you you get on that treadmill and it rarely gives you any time to look outside you choose to go outside and it's like help what happens yeah. next no i had lots of stuff going on i have two different wines i have a candle company i started I the podcast i do speaking engagements um but was that all going on i mean then? some of that was yeah okay. mm -hmm. yeah so I was, I felt like I, for a while I had a clothing line that was going on at that point in time. So there was plenty of stuff to keep me busy. And, uh, and so I wasn't at a lack of those things. And part of what I wanted to do when I retired was less. What is it about racing drivers and wine? <laughs> what is it with racing drivers and alcohol? <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking certainly in Formula One, Yano Trulli, uh, he has his own vineyard. Um, Daniel Ricciardo has one down under uh, dr3 even burnt Mayland. jensen's got some liquor he's got like whiskey right he's got some whiskey yeah what is it so let's broaden the net it's not just wine is it it's um it's alcohol <laughs> <laughs> you know it's because it's something that we never got to do while we were driving and so you know i, I think that there's a role for moderate healthy amount of relaxation of, of from alcohol and at what point in your life did you start to appreciate the finer things like wine Man, I started drinking wine when I lived in England. 
in England because yeah. of course the English are so well known for their <laughs> for their wine. Right, I was like, give me the sweetest <laughs> glass of white wine you have, and then that turned into dry white wine, and then I came back to the states, and then it turned into red, and then then it turned into buying something. <laughs> so what, what grapes do you grow? I have Cabernet, Cab Franc and a little bit of Petit Verdot. So we make uh, two cabs. Somnium is the one in Napa Valley that I have, and it make, we make two cabs, uh, Sav Blanc and a Rosé. I also have a French Rosé um, made in Provence called Danica Rosé. So Sebastian Vettel, if you're listening, <laughs> don't be scared by the prospect of retirement. Look at Danica. He doesn't look scared at all, does he? I feel like he looks ready. And, you know, I felt like while there was some things that definitely kind of pushed it along. I, I feel like I, I feel like there was some level of say so I had in the in the um, in the transition. And at the end of the day, sometimes it takes something like you, how do you know when to quit? How do you know, like in any professional athlete's career, a lot of times you're still reasonably young. It's not like you're like creeping on 60 and you're like, OK, my back hurts now. Like usually it's just kind of like a matter of when do things just kind of run their course. What are you doing to fill the void, the, you know, the adrenaline void that you got when you were racing, <laughs> the competitive void? <laughs> well, like I said, you know, whether it's, I mean, I find interviews to be kind of nerve wracking when I interview really, really amazing people. And um, it's a hard job what you're doing, like to have, like to be ready with everything, to know what you want to ask somebody. So I find that to be fun. But adrenaline wise, I mean, I found myself like going and doing crazy stuff, like doing Bear Grylls show and jumping oh, out of a, a scorpion. Yeah, I ate a How scorpion. Was <laughs> it was terrible. I just yacked that thing back. And then, um, you know, pulling myself across canyons hundreds of feet in the air on a rope and then you know jumping out of a helicopter at 11,000 feet and skydiving bungee jumping in New Zealand or whatever like I I find myself I just like to know I can I'm actually not necessarily cured of the fear of things I just like to know that I can overpower that fear if I need to because I'm I've always been afraid of heights and I can tell you after all those activities I just mentioned still afraid of heights <laughs> <laughs> Now, Danica, you've been an inspiration to so many people around the world. When we talk about legacy, when we're thinking of your racing career, mm -hmm. what do you say? Well, it's probably better to ask you, but I guess I'll answer your question first, and then maybe you can you can answer after. Um, you know, what is that legacy? Like, what do people remember about me? Is kind of how I think of it. Is like, what do people what do people think of me now that it's over? And what I hope that they think of me is that they remember me as a great driver. I never mind that they remember me as a girl, but I hope that they remember me as like, God, you know, she was really good. Like, she was good. Yeah, she was a girl, but she really like. She went against the guys and did an incredible job and, and, um, and accomplished a lot of great things. And so that's kind of what I hope they remember. Yeah, I think they do. You were a trailblazer, but more than anything, you were a fantastic driver. Oh, thank you. And look, final one from me. If you were starting out racing today... <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Here we go again. What but, I know. <laughs> why do you think every race car driver has a kid and they're like, no, I'm trying to not get them into racing? Because we know how hard it is. But if you were starting again and you wanted to get to Formula One, what route would you take? Would you still do the European thing or would you stay in the US? Well, it's a bit different now that there's so many F1 races in the United States. There'll definitely be some. And with the possibility that Michael Andretti might start a Formula One team, you know, there's a pathway through the United States and through open wheel racing here. And, you know, now these days, obviously, there's so much road course racing in IndyCar. And so, I mean, I think that's that's viable. If I were to design the path, I would say 
man, I think a really, I think getting some European experience is like, I think that grabs Formula One teams like, oh, they did race in England or raced in Europe. So I think something young would be a good idea, whether it be Formula Three or whatever. And then I would say, I think that if then you have to just go where you feel like you have the best opportunity. Like, you know, for instance, like some like the, the drive, the American driver, Logan Sargent. Right. Uh, I, I don't know him at all. Right. He's American. I don't know him. He's been in Europe the whole time. I haven't heard his name before. I think that you can go make your way that way. But I think you can come back this way, too. And I think you can be in the States. But I think that there is something to be said for having a little bit of European experience at some point in time that is attractive and uh, good for Formula One bosses to see that you're into the European scene and that you're open to, you know, maybe open to living anywhere. <laughs> Monica, wouldn't be so bad. Yeah, wouldn't be south of France anymore. Right. Right. That's great advice. It's yeah. great to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you. you again. And are we going to see you on the TV doing Formula <laughs> One next year? Oh, uh, I sure hope. I keep saying I, I'm having a really good time. And um, as I've said this, this last part of the season, doing these last couple of races that I'm like, I think provided I don't put my foot in my mouth like really bad, says something I really shouldn't, I think I'm going to have the opportunity to come back and maybe even do a couple more if I'm if I'm up for it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you. Danica, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Danica's such an engaging and interesting person, isn't she? She's a great communicator and she really knows what it's like to perform at the top. I love her take on motor racing and on life in general. She's an inspiration. Thanks for your time, Danica. And if you do get a chance to test an F1 car, please do it. I'd love to hear your take on the experience. Now, please send in your thoughts and stories about Danica. Were you at the Formula Ford Festival in 2000 when she finished second? Did you watch her race at Indy or even see her win at Motegi? And what do you think of her contributions to Sky's F1 broadcast? Please let me know your thoughts. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid and I'll read out some of the messages at the end of next week's show. Which of course brings me on to what you sent in about Nicholas Latifi after last week. Overall, many of you were impressed by his directness and his honesty. Let's start with this from Nicholas Burnett. A surprisingly honest and candid interview, TC. Nicky clearly knows his ability and limitations, and I hope he gets a crack in another motorsport to prove many doubters wrong. I totally agree with you, Nicholas. Nicky deserves to have a long and successful career in motorsport, and I hope he goes to IndyCar because I think he can do well there. The cars aren't dissimilar to Formula 2, where he's won races in the past. Next, let's hear from Gilher Matar. Nicholas Latifi is a rare example of humbleness and decency that will be much missed in Formula One. Great interview. Best wishes from Brazil. Well, best wishes to you in beautiful Brazil. And I'm on my way to Sao Paulo, Gilham. It's interesting that you use the word decency. It's one that definitely applies to Nicky. And what about this from Damien Pooley? Great episode with Nicholas Latifi. I really loved his honesty when talking about the challenges he's faced this year. I'd love to see him in IndyCar in the years to come, as in the right car. He's clearly got the talent and the attitude to succeed. Thanks for the note, Damien. And attitude is so important in professional sport, isn't it? Nicky seems to have the right one, and I think he'll move on from Formula One seamlessly and will want to prove that in the right car, he can still win races. We'll leave it there for this week. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. It was great to hear from you. And please remember to get in touch about Danica in time for next week's show. 
So what are you listening to next? How about our episode with Danica's team boss, the IndyCar and Formula One driver Bobby Rahal? Or what about NASCAR champ Jeff Gordon? Or even another racing trailblazer, Susie Wolfe? There are links to those interviews in the show description. And thanks for rating and reviewing the show on your podcast app. We've got some really exciting interviews between now and the end of the year, and I can't wait for you to hear them. Make sure you're following the show so you don't miss them. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.